Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. Cliff. Good afternoon to you, Bobo. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Nothing new to report. I know you're pressed for time, so you want to get into it? I'm more than happy to do that. Absolutely. So yeah, um, this is going to be an exciting episode because it's not very often we have a guest back twice. There's been uh, one, maybe two other folks, uh, but this is uh, this is fairly new for us. We tend to have people on once, and that's about it. But there's a reason for this. We've invited this guy back because he has a brand new book out. Um, and it, it has been doing quite well, apparently. It's made quite the splash in the community. And I don't know if everybody's heard about this or not yet. But um, yeah, today we vel- we're welcoming back Dr. Russ Jones from West Virginia. And um, he has a brand new book called The Appalachian Bigfoot. Um, uh, the first book, of course, was uh, Tracking the Stone Man, a, a great book. I think it's fantastic, especially if you live in West Virginia. It's a must-have, must-read. But really, no matter where you are, you should check out that book. So now he's followed up with a well, actually, it's a, it's a more intensive, more jam-packed book. Um, there's more pages. There's more diagrams. It, it, in general, it, it's a, so far so good, man. I'm really liking this book. So, uh, Dr. Russ Jones, welcome back to Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and the Bows. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. And, uh, you know, I always enjoy the podcast, so I'm glad to be back. The honor is all ours, Russ. Well, yeah, so uh, you have a brand new book out. I guess that uh, before we hop into the book, well, I mean, you haven't been on for about a year and a half or something like that. What have you been up to besides writing this book? Gosh, has it been that long since it's been, I guess, COVID kind of makes it so it's all a blur. Yeah, I've got a kind of elastic sense of time, though, to be fair. So could have been three months ago for all I know, but it feels like a year and a half. Well, time is elastic, Cliff. I know. You know, I've been uh, spending a lot of time in the woods. I'm still doing my thing with... Uh, you know, I try to get out three or four times a week, and then maybe every couple months I'm out for a whole week. And I'm up to around 40 game cams now. Um, it's kind of funny. Last weekend, I went through 17,000 pictures. <laughs> and, of course, you know, 16,183 of them was a squirrel looking at me, and maybe another 300 were a deer nose, you know, sniffing at my camera. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's fun for me. I enjoy being out there and... You know, if you're going out all the time and you're hoping to see a Bigfoot every time, you're probably going to be disappointed. But if you just like being out in the woods and getting a chance to be out, then, you know, I like that a lot. Some people see a Bigfoot every time they go out. Yeah. How does that work? <laughs> you, need a red pen, you need a red felt pen to circle them. Before COVID, I'd started the other book. It had been like six years since I wrote Tracking the Stone Man. And then COVID hit and I set it aside and... Then in the the first year of COVID, I'd moved and 
when I got to the new place, I just didn't have a place where I really felt like sitting down and writing. So I didn't do anything for about three or four months. And then you're trying to get a desk and it's like, you know, four or five months to get a piece of furniture. And, um, but then, you know, several months ago I was on it really hard and heavy, you know, a couple of hours each day for several months. And, um, you know, you're always nervous because, you know, you write something and, you just don't know how it's going to be perceived or how the public's going to feel about it. And of course you're putting stuff out there and there's always people that disagree with some of the things that you say, but I mean, I was, I've just been very humbled at how well it's done. Just happy with that. Awesome. I, I haven't read it yet. I, I got to read because I liked the first one so much. I read that like two or three times and I got to get this new one. What's it's called the what again? It's called the Appalachian Bigfoot and it's 10 weeks now. It's been at number one on Amazon, um, you know, in that science new age category that most of this type of stuff is in. Whoa, and congrats. Thank you. It's done so well that the publisher signed me to do a second edition of the stone man, the first book. And, uh, it was funny. He asked me if, you know, maybe I could have it done in like seven or eight months. And I'm like, I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> and so I just need some time in the woods and I, I just started a new website. It's called thebigfootdoc.com. You know, I'm trying to generate some reports through Appalachia. Um, but other people from other areas are welcome to send reports uh, to me, and I'll find somebody that will get in talk, contact with them. Just like, you know, many times Cliff will get something in Appalachia and send it to me, and, you know, and I'll follow up on it. So I'm hoping to do the same. I guess that's, that's the end of it. Well, that's kind of just the beginning, really, if anything. So the Bigfoot Doc, I, I, I was not aware that you were making um, uh, a website. It's thebigfootdoc.com? Yeah, thebigfootdoc.com. It's funny, Cliff, because, you know, usually like on Twitter, I'm just Bigfoot Doc. Well, I went on just to make sure that it was available, Bigfoot Doc. Well, I went on like a week later when I was working with the company that does the websites and Bigfoot Doc was $50,000 on GoDaddy, apparently because I had searched for it before and looked at it. And so somebody had apparently bought it. And so then that's how I ended up with the Bigfoot Doc. Well, I like your the Bigfoot Doc as opposed to a Bigfoot Doc. You yeah. Know, I like those uh, definite articles as opposed to the indefinite ones. Yeah, that's just, it just sounds better. But, you know, it's when you look at things, I, it's hard to generate all the data. And I guess, you know, we go through different phases, just like in practice when I'm seeing patients, you know, at first you're working all the time and you're seeing all these patients and you're not taking much time off. And then you get a little older and you are, you know, trying to take more time off and trying to do the things you do and maybe not doing that. Well, Bigfoot was kind of like that for me too. You know, I've went through phases and now in this last couple of years, I've got through the phase where I'm just trying to accumulate data. And really, Cliff, I don't know if you remember this, but, you know, we were at a conference and um, Matt Pruitt, you, um, Jeff Meldrum, and I can't remember who the other person was. And we were all sitting there talking and um, you'd ask me what I was up, you know, to lately and what kind of things I was doing in the woods, what kind of, you know, I'm usually doing these nifty things like, you know, maybe I have mirrors set up in trees or, you know, different types of things going on that I'm just, you know, trying to, you know, get something reflexively to happen. And you said, you know, I just haven't got out. This was before, you know, the uh, museum opened for you. You said, I just haven't got to do that much stuff lately, man. You know, I'm like, I'm so busy speaking. And when I was listening to you, I just thought, I just want to be in the woods. 
And so when I got home, I had been scheduled several uh, conferences to speak. And I just called and just said, hey, I'm going to do something else right now. And, um, you know, and that's what I'm trying to do. I'm doing podcasts. Um, but other than that, I'm just trying to spend my time in the woods. I'm just trying to get more data, you know, and it's uh, trying to find out when I think something's going to be at a certain place, at a certain time of the year. And, you know, you can only do that by either you coming up with your own answers through, you know, your game cameras or, you know, a witness filing a report or something along those lines. You know, I told you I was up to about 40 game cameras now, but one of the interesting things I think is that, you know, I want a picture of a game cam, of Bigfoot on a game can, of course, who doesn't. But now I start looking at other things like when all the animals don't show up because largely the cameras are in place for about a year, wherever they're at. I want four seasons with them. And so you get familiar with the certain animals in that particular um, area of the woods, what they're doing. You know, you may see 23 or 24 deer every single day or a couple coyotes or what it happens to be. But I noticed over the years that I would start to see a week or so, sometimes four days, sometimes eight or nine days where nothing would be on there at all. And so I just theorized, hypothesized that there's something in the woods bothering the animals of that particular camera, whatever it happens to be. And, you know, Bigfoot is a possible reason why that could be. So, you know, I try to, you know, I always keep a Bigfoot calendar of sightings and different things and what my cameras are showing. And so before that comes up, I try to move more cameras into that particular area during that time to see if I can reproduce it, to see if it's the whole area or whatever it happens to be. But, you know, just trying to recreate, accumulate as much data as I can. I guess I'm in the data collecting phase of the Bigfoot development right now. Well, that's that's fantastic. And, you know, if you, if you don't have a, uh, um, a platform like the Bigfoot doc or something like that, which is new. Right. But um, if you don't have a platform like a website or BFRO or um, the, uh, the North American Bigfoot Center or something like that, where people are bringing you stuff, you got to go out and make your own data. You got to go out and find your own data. You know, that you have to produce your own data, essentially. About, and most of it's going to be negative data, which is largely overlooked, I think. Um, I think negative data can be very, very instructive. And that's kind of what you're talking about now with the game cameras. When there's you, you see these coyotes three or four times a week and suddenly a couple of weeks go by and you don't see them, that's negative data. Like you're not getting anything. What can that teach you as well? Right. I mean, it's interesting, too, because you have to keep in mind that there's people in the Bigfoot world that believe that, you know, there's a relationship between coyotes and Bigfoot. I don't have an opinion on that, but when I'm looking at camera pictures, you know, I'm keeping it in mind. Same way with the deer. You know, we don't have through Appalachia. It's acknowledged that there is uh, mountain lions now. You know, there's been some that have showed up. One was killed in New England, had a tag. It was from South Dakota. Tennessee has acknowledged a couple of game cameras from state. And I had a picture, I believe, that was a, you know, I couldn't see quite the rear end. So I sent it to Derek Randall's because I figure, you know, if anybody knows anything about mountain lions, it's probably Derek, right? Between all the game cam pictures and the hunting. And, and he told me that he thought that it was a mountain lion as well. And so, you know, this can have an effect on, you know, your deer that are in there look, that you're looking at as well. But nonetheless, um, you know, there's something going on in that period of time. It's worth investigating, just like keeping track of all the sightings in a particular area and going back. And, you know, last year having a, you know, I think that I had an encounter for the first time in terms of actually getting to see one, it wasn't very good, but I was in a particular park because two years prior, two gentlemen had had a sighting when they were fishing there. And so, you know, it was on my calendar 
and I try to go back like I was in a particular place last week because there had been a sighting there a couple of years before as well. And it had rained a lot the night before. And when I got there, you know, there was nobody there at the park. And, you know, when I hit the trail that took kind of takes you up around the mountain, I went up and I noticed there was no tracks and no one had been there before me. And, you know, Shade, my lab is walking with me all the time. I'm carrying a leash around my neck, but, you know, he's not leashed because, you know, he just listens well and he's, you know, 20 feet in front of me all the time. And when I got up on top of this hill and I started around, I glanced and to my right, about 60 yards away, I thought hiker, I noticed it was all buff colored all the way up and down. And I noticed what I thought was a backpack and I just kind of whistled at shade. He ran back to me and I clipped him on five seconds later, literally we're walking again. But as soon as I start walking, I noticed the trail turns and I got suspicious immediately, you know, and I ran right up there to where it had been. And there's a ridge right there. And I went up the ridge and I looked all over. And of course, I would have been able to see anything. And there was just nothing there. But, you know, many times I've talked to different people, including Matt Pruitt, about how your brain in an instant will try to categorize it into something recognizable when you're in the woods. So almost every time that I go in the woods, before I go in, I tell myself, if you see something or you hear something, make sure to pause. Because, you know, it just instantly will try to put whatever I saw or heard into something I've recognized previously and what it is most likely. And, you know, and I don't want to make an assumption when I'm in the woods doing Bigfoot stuff. Yeah, it seems to me like a very large percentage of people who observe Sasquatches think they're people when they when they see them. And they kind of convince themselves until later. They go, my, my God, maybe that wasn't a person. It sounds like he probably did the exact same thing. I know. And, you know, I really felt like that I wouldn't be one of those people that because I'd spent so much time since I was a little boy in the woods, always hunting and trapping and all this other stuff that I wouldn't be vulnerable to vulnerable to that. But in the end, you know, it's just like everybody else. And so now I just have to remind myself, you know, like it wasn't very long ago. I started when I moved, I picked up another area that I started researching and I'd be in there like, you know, once or twice a week and putting cameras in there and that stuff. Well, I was up this hollow and I don't know, I was about a two mile walk or so clear, sunny day. It was nice. And a tree fell and it was close to me, you know, within a hundred yards, but it was brushy. I couldn't really see in there very well. But my immediate thought was that's just too loud. And I just kept walking. And then later, you know, I thought, why wouldn't you just walk over there? I mean, you know, it's a hundred yards away. I mean, just walk over in a brush and look around. I mean, you know, maybe it wasn't too loud. I mean, how do you know what's too loud? Yeah. Um, you know, so like I said, it's, it's interesting how we're shaped, you know, like, for instance, last year I was in the woods with my uncle and he's a lifetime hunter, trapper, you know, running dogs, coons and, you know, rabbits, all this other stuff. Well, we're in this really thick area and we're looking for a, a, a pipe that used to be decades ago put in this creek. And I was trying to find a place where I could get a tractor across. And of course, my personal farm borders a park where there's a history of sightings and my farm borders it for three quarters of a mile. So there's no hunting there. And, um, you know, there's just a history of a, a good place for there to be a Bigfoot activity. And so we're on my part of the farm. It's really thick. We're walking along and I happen to notice, and it's, there's pictures of it in the book that there's like 10 or 12 saplings that are about half the width of your wrist and they're twisted and broken off and they're all laying there stacked. And I don't know whether I would call it a bed or whether I would call it a blind but, you know, I said to my uncle, just, you know, just look at this. And he came back and he's like, what? And I'm like, 
well, look at all these sticks laying here. You know, something broke these. Something had to break these with their hand and they're laying here. And he just said, huh? And he just walked off. You know, it wasn't related to turkeys or to deer or to rabbits or to all the other things that he hunted. So, you know, it makes me wonder, you know, I always talk about how I suspect that so many people have Bigfoot encounters, but they really don't know that they had an encounter. You know, they don't either. They interpret what they saw differently. They think it was a human or a deer or they don't know the Bigfoot sounds or the behaviors like a rock being thrown or a stick being thrown or something like that. And they just pass it off as, you know, something just falling or something like that. We all do that. I mean, I know from personal experience, I did the same thing for years and years. And most Bigfoot investigators, I know the same thing. Like they didn't know what they were missing for a long time. Yeah. You know, that's the reality of, you know, I suspect there's a lot of people that have had Bigfoot interactions and didn't recognize that they that they were. And then even hunters, woodsmen that are skilled and have been in the woods a long time, it's not part of what they're looking for. So maybe they just don't recognize. I can remember um, being in the most remote places in, in all of Ohio, coon hunting with my grandfather, you know, and this is in the 70s. And we didn't have really good flashlights. I mean, we were using carbide lights. He had one. And it's like a candle, kind of like you see the miners used to wear. And I had like, there was these battery or uh, flashlights that, you know, you screwed onto the battery and it was really bright, but they didn't last that long. And so, you know, I had a rope around my neck and he would never let you turn it on unless you had seen a coon in a tree because, you know, you're always worried that you just weren't going to have any light whenever, you know, you happen to get something treed. And you know, we get to the cellar and we stuff as many apples in our pockets as we could before we went out. And we would be, you know, you drive back in some state forest or some remote area and then you're parking and you're driving and you're walking, you know, several hours back in here in the middle of nowhere. And you're just sitting in the dark waiting for your dogs to bark. And I can remember on a couple different occasions hearing wood knocks and I'd ask my grandfather, you know, what that was. And he said that, you know, sound carries funny in the hills and somebody slams a car door and it comes up all these hollows and it makes a different sound like that. And, you know, he believed that, you know, he just didn't know that there was something different. And now in retrospect, I, you know, I knew exactly what it was. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Kick off 2022 with a better checking account with no monthly fees. Chime, an award-winning app and debit card, has no overdraft fees, foreign transaction fees, monthly fees, or service fees. With over 60,000 fee-free in-network ATMs at many locations like most Walgreens, 7-Eleven, CVS, you can access your money when you need it, where you need it. You can also send money to anyone, even if they aren't on Chime. Fee-free for you and no cash-out fees for them. Make your first good decision of the new year and join over 10 million people using Chime. Sign up only takes two minutes and doesn't affect your credit score. Get started at Chime.com slash Bigfoot. That's Chime.com slash Bigfoot. Banking services provided by and debit card issued by the Bank Corp Bank or Stride Bank NA, members of FDIC. Get fee-free transactions at any MoneyPass ATM in a 7-Eleven location and at any AllPoint or Visa Plus Alliance ATM. Otherwise, out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. Sometimes pay anyone instant transfers can be delayed. The recipient must use a valid debit card or be a Chime member to claim funds. Cliff and I have noticed all over North America, you hear 
slamming door car doors where there's no way there's a car within miles of you. Like there's no road, and you hear this like close by a loud car door slam. You have you heard that? You know, I've heard you guys talk about that, and other people talk about that. Here, not very long ago, I was in a place putting out a camera, and I thought that I heard. To me, it sounded like a car door that was kind of like rusty screen or rusty closed, like not like a regular car door, but it was like, you know, if you had one, it was like a junked one that you pushed it shut and it kind of went and, you know, made a sound similar to that. Um, You know, but the reality is, is that no matter how much you're out, even if you're out thousands and thousands of hours, I mean, it's not common to hear wood knocks. You know, it's not common to find footprints. Um, you know, most of the time you're just in the woods hiking, you know, looking around. Uh, you know, I think that's one of the things I wonder if why we haven't had this proliferation of woo across the Bigfoot field is that when you go into the woods, a lot of times people just expect, you know, to have action all the time or to have something happen all the time. And, you know, it's just not like that. At least I don't believe. I mean, these are large animals and you know, they, it seems like that they stay relatively in the same kind of areas, but, you know, they have to move a little bit because, you know, they're large and they need food. And, you know, they they couldn't use all the food sources and stay, of course. You know, they'd have to be able to move on. I guess that was a long answer, but I apologize for that. But I've heard a screeching car door, but that was about it. Don't let that happen again, Russ. <laughs> yeah, it seems like there's very uh, out-of-place sounds occasionally. I have heard that car door slam thing. I've been with people who have heard it, and I've been in the vicinity. So my working hypothesis at this point is that these things are kind of like parrots. They can probably produce whatever sound they kind of want to. Um, maybe that's uh, at the source of some of this mechanical noise that people report out in the woods or a variety of other things. And every, everybody and their mother, who, if you've been around Bigfoot for, long, for any period of time, has heard about the 800-pound owl. And I tend to think those are probably owls. Um, you know, without seeing them, and it sounds like an owl, you know, you, you could say, well, that's not the wind. That's a Bigfoot imitating the wind. Like, how far do you want to take it, really? Um, it's always go with the safest answer. But when you have no possible way there could be a vehicle within a few hundred yards and you hear something like that, it kind of makes you wonder. I, I think that's a suitable situation that forms a sort of hypothesis. There's this one place that I've been to several times, and several different times I've had activity when I'm in there. I mean, Let's say that I've been there 20 or 30 times and maybe once or twice, you know, something happened to let me believe that they were in there for whatever reason. And I know that uh, the last two times I had been in there, I noticed that I would hear a barred owl. And of course, I'm in there during the daylight because, you know, if anybody's heard me talk, they, you know, what I believe is that most of the time when people go out at night, they're going out to have an experience. You know, they're getting going out to be near the animals, going out to you know, maybe have something come close to you or whatever, but I don't believe there's that much evidence that's really pushing anything forward that's coming from at night. So almost all the time when I'm out, it's during the day. And I had recognized that I had heard the, uh, an owl twice, you know, when I was in there that, um, two different occasions. And so I was conscious of it, you know, cause you always hear people say that, you know, they're sitting by a campfire and they hear this 800 pound owl or the 600 pound bird or whatever it happens to be. And so I was conscious of it, trying to think of, you know, is this Bigfoot mimicking? Because I do believe that they mimic um, an owl or is it really an owl? But I could never tell because to me, it legitimately sounded like an owl. And, you know, you will hear barred owls occasionally during the day, not like you do at night. But, you know, it's hard to know, you know, because you're never getting a chance to really see, you know, the animal. Same way with wood knocks, you know, is 
is it a hand clap? Is it a mouth pop? Um, you know, are they carrying a piece of stick to hit something? You know, we really don't know. Yeah. There's no way to know unless you actually see. And, you know, it's another thing that people say all the time, and I hear it so much. It's like, oh, it, the, the thing that was yelled at us, it was only 50 yards away. Uh, how do you know? I mean, really, when it, I hate to be disrespectful, but not you personally, but how does one know if you don't know how loud it is at the source? You know, but I mean, please say this thing had to be within 20, 50, 20, 30 yards. So, you know, you just don't know that, man. An extraordinarily loud thing at 200 yards sounds exactly the same as what you were, you know. So, um, yeah, without seeing these things, we're just kind of guessing. We're just kind of guessing is the fact, whether people like to hear that or not. It's, we're just guessing. You know, it's interesting when you talk about the sound, too, is that I had read a study when they were talking about um, turkeys, you know, because of course here in the spring, people will be out hunting turkeys. And when you hear a turkey gobble, it sounds so loud, but there were some studies that showed that, you know, you really couldn't hear, a tur- you know, unless you're looking, talking about, you know, from mountain to mountain or something like that, you really couldn't hear a turkey gobble much beyond 200 yards and 200 yards, you know, really isn't that far. You know, it's a couple of football lengths. And, um, you know, so a lot of times when you're reading the reports or you talk to a witness, you know, and you'll hear them say something along the lines, you know, it was a quarter mile away or a half mile away. And I think that when you think about witnesses, human witnesses, I think that people discount it too easily. You know, it's not like when you go to a police station and they say, well, you know, it was a green car, it was a red car and humans mix it up or whatever, but they don't mix up whether it was a human or not a human. I think that people can probably tell pretty easy if they saw a Bigfoot walk through an area, you know, that they knew that it wasn't a human or whatever. But I don't think that people are very good at judging like height or distance or, you know, for that reason, the sounds like how things are, you know, and and invariably you'll hear all the time people say, you know, Hey, it's uh, I've been in the woods my whole life. I heard this noise. I've never heard anything like this before. But the reality is, you know, people aren't in the woods very much and they don't know all the sounds. And, you know, there's some stuff that makes some pretty weird sounds in the woods. Oh, yeah. Foxes and raccoons among them, you know, very common animals. And they make some pretty crazy noises. Yeah. When somebody tells me um, if they tell me a number, this thing was, I don't know, 300 yards away and it was eight and a half feet tall. I, I don't even I mean, I listen. But at the end of the day, I might write it down because that's the witness's perspective. But I don't believe it. And it's not like they're lying. It's just that people are terrible observers and they're terrible at numerical values for things like heights, weights, distances, and all that sort of stuff. Unless you've been specifically trained on that. Bow hunters are pretty good, like at distance. I, I listen to them if they're talking about like 30 or 80 yards or. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause uh, their, their skill depends on it. Yeah. Cause um, I used, <clears throat> when I'd be driving with my friends, like around up in Northern Cal and, I'd measured some of the Bigfoot statues along the roadways. I'd say, how, like, you know, we'd be like, you know, three, 400 yards, 200 yards away. I'd say, how, how tall do you think that, that Bigfoot statue is? They'd say, six foot, seven foot. And then we'd get up next to it, it's eight foot, you know, nine foot. Or they'd say the opposite, like there's some one, there's this one that was seven foot, I think it was seven foot eight or nine. And they'd say, oh, it looks, you know, it's, it's your size, six foot, you know, six, six, maybe at the most. It's like, yeah, they'd be they'd be way off. Yeah, I, I think if you took a hundred people and, and and gave them a uh, surprising glance at something at a at a hundred two hundred yards away, less than fifteen percent of them would be close to actual heights. Especially if they were scared or, like I said, surprised or the the, the view was so you know like, like a Sasquatch report, like a two second view of something running at a distance. 
Well, you're not going to be very good at that. So I kind of, if they say eight and a half, they say nine or 10 feet or whatever. I just say, I put in my own mind, big, there's a big, you know, what, you know, and if they say, I don't know, six or seven or something, no, that indicates a little bit smaller, you know, and then medium-ish, you know, and then there's small three, four five feet tall, that sort of thing. That's basically as, as accurate as I think anybody can be. Um, unless there's some other compelling reason, some law enforcement or, or bow hunter, as Bobo said, some other uh, skill set that has been practiced or instilled in this person um, that makes them more accurate. It's just basically small, medium and big at this point. One of the things I'm excited about right now is, uh, you know, it's becoming one of the times of the year that we for sure can kind of pick where they would be around, you know, here in West Virginia, all through Appalachia, spring is coming and the vernal pools, and if anybody doesn't know what a vernal pool is, it's uh, a long creek in low places that with winter weather, snows, and flooding, you'll get these areas maybe their size of a swimming pool, you know, some a little larger, some a little smaller, that they're not very deep. And, you know, that's where all the wood frogs are laying their eggs. The salamanders are coming out. It is a early smorgasbord of food. It's interesting. I mean, Say here in West Virginia, you know, when the TV show Finding Bigfoot was here, we were here because a, a, a herpetologist had, had a sighting at near one of these. And it was interesting because I had been at that park eight days in a row because of that every single day. And, you know, the park runs for miles. But that guy that had the sighting was literally parked where I was. But just two hours later, he came at night because he wanted to see the spotted salamanders. And it's pretty amazing because these things are like, you know, they're literally have dots on them, spots on them, and they come down the mountainsides and there's tens of thousands of them, maybe hundreds of thousands. And they're just everywhere. And you'll have dozens of owls just sitting there getting them. All the animals are after them and they're about the size of a Snickers bar and they're slow. They're not uh, very aggressive. So it's just a good early year food source. And the problem is, of course, picking, you know, which hole or which vernal pool, you know, would be the best. You know, a lot of times when I'm hiking, I see them or see where one will be and try to keep an idea on that. But, you know, that's coming up anytime. They're already active right now. So there's a very good chance that, you know, a Bigfoot would be visiting these. And, of course, then we get into summer. We have the berries. Um, you know, then you're trying to pick right-of-ways where four-wheelers wouldn't have access um, you know, it's a little remote, so something can have some privacy and not be hassled by people and hikers. So it seems like it's really productive, especially the vernal pool, because the leaves aren't on until about April. So you can be off trail. You can see a little better. It's a you know, pretty exciting time for Bigfooters. Do you target any of these vernal pools, especially in off the beat, beaten path areas with your game cameras? So what I have done in the past is that I'm constantly trying to come up with new areas. Like I was just in that same park where they had that happen. And I put one on a vernal pool and then I'm always trying to come up with a different idea. Cause you know, Cliff, you and I had talked about before you were talking to, I can't think of the name of the primatologist is on some of the TV shows. The woman that's from England, she was supposed to come to the Ohio conference. Oh yeah. Dr. Anna Nakaris. That's right. And so we were talking about, you were talking to her and having a conversation about game cameras and, you know, where are you putting them on ridges, on flats, uh, saddles, you know, right down the line. And then she said to you, you know, well, how do you know they even travel that way? And, you know, so you had to constantly challenge yourself. Like I put one out last Thursday and it's not someplace that I would put 
normally a game camera, but it was just, you know, a little draw that came up from a deep hollow. And I thought, you know, you just don't know. So, you know, as she said, you know, they may travel only on north facing hillsides, 22 degrees up the slope or whatever it happens to be. That's an exaggeration, of course. But, you know, we just don't know until we know. But I suspect that once we start getting an answer, more data, and someone comes up with a game camera and says, this is how it was set up, then I suspect we'll be able to get a lot of game, a lot of um, evidence come out all at once. Yeah, because one thing is abundantly clear is that whatever we're doing now isn't working. So what, what, we should just do the opposite of what we're doing now. You know, one of the things Dr. Nakara said, um, try this, throw a rock, wherever it lands, put up a game camera. So, wow, just totally random. He said, well, yeah, well, until you start getting positive hits, how do you know where they are? You, you, you think they travel like the other animals? Well, apparently not, because you're getting all the other animals on game camera and not these things. It was very interesting speaking to her, and I would recommend anything that she does. Take a very good, hard, close listen to. She's a legitimate PhD who studies one of the only nocturnal primates in the world in Sumatra. Um, and she has fascinating data. If you can hear her speak in person, do it. Really, really fascinating stuff. Like um, I remember one, one thing that always stuck with me is the she had there's a correlation, a data correlation between the speed with which one walks and how many animals you see. And of course, everybody and their mother, like all the hunters out there, are saying, "Yeah, yeah, of course, Cliff." No, but but like apparently, if you walk something like a hundred yards an hour, um, you will see five or six times more animals of, of all sorts, all species than you would if you're just your normal, you know, one and a half mile per hour walking speed or whatever you walk at. So I hadn't heard that. It's, uh, that's interesting. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And also she's, how many, uh, for primate encounters directly, every time you added a person, if you go with one person, you get say 500, if you go with two people, you get like 250. And then it, it keeps the gap keeps like, you know, you got six people, you, you, you might get 20 interactions instead of the 500 by yourself. Yeah, there is a relationship there, yeah, between the number of people in the group and how many animals you see, of course. And all these things are obvious, you know, once you say them. Uh, but if they're so obvious, why aren't we doing it? Yeah, I think that that's what I'm hoping for is that we'll see. I mean, I suspect that when Bigfoot is documented that there'll be a lot of evidence come out that people are holding back for whatever reason. They don't want to be called a name or they don't want to be bugged about it or they don't want people in their land. I suspect there's law like that that's out there right now. But I mean, for instance, there was this park that I was in and, you know, they closed this park down at like 11 at night. And there's this one road that goes out in the middle of nowhere. And there's a pond right at the end of it. It's just a little pond about the size of like, I don't know, maybe 50 feet by 50 feet. It's not very big. But, you know, when I was back there, I was like, in my mind, I thought if there's ever a Bigfoot in this area, it's coming to this pond eventually. And so, you know, then you're looking at, and I thought, well, you know, how would I approach this pond? Of course, you know, I'm just guessing, right? Because I could in all likelihood be wrong, but there was a drain out of the bottom side of it. And so I put a camera on this tree down there and I had it out over a year. It was there maybe a couple of years because I'd had some interesting pictures that came out that weren't necessarily interesting in terms of Bigfoot, but cool coyotes or maybe big bucks or bobcats or something. So, um, you know, I'm always working with these parks and so... I'm sending the rangers or the park managers nice pictures of big bucks of bobcats, just cool pictures, and they're putting them up on their website. And that's part of the way, you know, you're developing a relationship with them so that when something happens, you know, they may email you or call you or say, you know, like now I can walk in most parks 
with a map and, you know, just talk to them about different areas of the park and if they're having problems, you know, like I just recently was in one and there's like four or five remote areas in that park and, you know, and they took a marker and said, don't go here. They were having problems with four wheelers. And, you know, so then you're getting some valuable information from them. But anyways, back to that drainage that was in there, I put a camera there. We know if you put it up this time of the year, you just don't know. When I went back, I found a footprint and, you know, I don't find them often, you know, maybe a couple a year, three a year, maybe. And in Appalachia, you know, usually you don't have a track line. There's leaf duff everywhere. And so you may find a track and that's about it because they may step on a trail or a path and they're through it. And um, there was that track and I knew my camera was right down there, maybe just 50 feet below. And I thought it walked right by my camera. But when I got down there, the early leaves that came on and there was a new leaf that came out or a new branch and it was just enveloping my camera inside it. You know, I couldn't even see my camera. (laughs) Squatcher's law. I was going to ask you, Russ, what do you think? I mean, because you're level-headed and data-driven and all this. What do you think the danger potential is of Sasquatches out in Appalachia? I used to never carry a gun when I was out for years and years and years. And a friend of mine, um, Brad Kenny's investigator in Columbus, and he started talking to me about David Pilates, 411 books. And, you know, I had read his first two Bigfoot books, were, which were great. And then, um, you know, so I read the 411 books. And most of them, you know, when you're a provider and you see patients all day, like the great majority of them, you know, there could have been some type of health-related incident and probably weren't that big a deal. But there were some that were really compelling and interesting. And I worry more about people than I do an animal you know, I worry about the people growing pot on state and national forest lands, um, that type of people. So I'm carrying a weapon with me all the time now, which I didn't do when I was younger. Maybe it's because I was naive and you're thinking, oh, you're a pretty big guy and you're carrying this walking stick and you're good to go. But, you know, sometimes I come out, I'm always parked in a remote location. And, you know, a lot of times I come out, there might be somebody, you know, it's just guys parked back there having a few drinks or something or maybe a couple parked, um, you know, and you just don't know what the situation is going to be. And then of course I got my lab with me. And of course he thinks no matter who you are, that it's his friend. So he wants to <laughs> pull sprint over there to get, uh, you know, some attention from those people. But I, I think that the reality is, is that they were dangerous. They would have already been hunted down and killed. They're rare. There's not very many of them around. I mean, I was thinking earlier because, you know, I did a, I was talking to somebody about finding the bones or whatever. And I'm like, you know, if you just think about it and, I used to think that there was quite a few of them. And then as I've gotten older and done done this more years, you know, of course, this is just speculation, I guess. I don't think there's quite as many of them. And so, you know, I started thinking about numbers, you know, because of needing a carrying capacity of the woods. You know, you're sharing it with other animals. You're sharing it with humans. You know, how many of them there might be. And so, you know, I was thinking like, you know, 4,000 to 20,000. And I'm hesitant to even say it because, you know, just like writing a book, as soon as you put something out there, there's a lot more skeptics for what you say. Cause they'll say, Oh, that can't be right. And I had somebody that was wooish told me one time that there was around a million of them, huh. <laughs> which I thought was a really large number, but you know, I was thinking 4,000 to 20,000 or something for North America. And then if you started dividing it out, how many would be each state? And if they live something like the greater apes would be, you know, maybe around 50 years or so, more or less. Then you start thinking about 5% attrition is what's average 
So in a state like Washington, Oregon, Ohio, West Virginia, you know, you may have 10 animals in each place die in a whole year in a whole state. And when you start looking at it like that, you know, there's not very good odds of bumping into something like that. Mm-hmm. No, and as far as them being dangerous, what my, my data that I point out is like clearly that they're potentially dangerous. They should be given a wide berth like grizzly bears or anything else like that. Um, but at the end of the day, if they were out to get us, there'd be very few of us left. Yeah, sorry, Bobo. I kind of went off topic about that. but No, that was perfect. <laughs> it was great. No, you're right. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. I think that they could have, all of us have been out there a lot. They could have gotten any of us at any given time. And I'm, I'm sure they're like people and there's probably some of them that are just like us. Some of us, you just don't want to meet. And some of them are probably like that too. And occasionally something happens and maybe a person disappears. And I'm sure that it's probably happened historically, but you know, fortunately it hasn't happened uh, to anybody that I know of. You know, Dave Pilates just told me personally that he, he now thinks that le- way less than 5% of all the disappearances in his book could be attributed to a Sasquatch. That seems about right. I think, yeah, very, very small number of them. But it probably does happen because like, just like humans, Sasquatches are individuals, you know, and they all have their own personal experience that kind of accumulate and form who they are. And uh, probably wouldn't take very many people shooting at one before they realize that people are kind of jerks and don't want to be around them or take some sort of, you know, revenge or something like that if they've been shot before. Um, and if you look at Ape Canyon or the Bowman incident or any of these um, stories that you know, the, the Sasquatch was prone to violence, they were shot at first. They were shot at first. Let that be a lesson to all of us, I guess. Or what if there's an old one around or a, a small one around, a baby, an infant, or, you know, that somebody bumped into or one that was crippled and was hungry and was having trouble getting food. And, um, you know, would that be more aggressive? I mean, you know, you it think seems so. that it might be. Yeah, because at the end of the day, humans are a food source. Um, if, if a Sasquatch is driven towards starvation, um, a sa- you know, I'm sure I look delicious. I know I'm delicious. <laughs> yeah, look at you. Yeah, and, I, and that's a situation that the chimpanzees fall into sometimes. And uh, chimpanzees are known to steal babies um, and eat them um, uh, under starvation situations. Um, so, yeah, I don't think I, there's no reason to think Sasquatches would would not do the same thing. I mean, they are not at, at the end of the day, Sasquatches are not our forest friends, you know, no more than bears or anything else are. I think there's some that are friendly for sure. Well, like you think, I think they're probably hominins and 2% of all humans have a sociopathic tendency. So and a full 20% of lawyers, I might add. <laughs> so I've read. So you figure, I mean, so if that's, if it's say it's 2% of them sociopathic and you think there's maybe 300 in Oregon cliff, then that would mean you got five or six, seven of them that could be really dangerous. I'll be careful. <laughs> hey, Russ, um, since you're around the woods so much and you are interested in accumulating data and whatnot, you've been looking for footprints. I know you say you find a few a year. Um, have you been able to identify the same individual Sasquatch based on their footprints over time? No, I haven't. I know that there are some people that uh, have done that. I've heard you talk about that, Cliff, but um, I have not. Primarily when I find footprints, it's not in the same area. I haven't found them repetitiously, uh, you know, in that area. I'm st- I think that as time goes on and I get a better idea of when they're in a certain time in a certain place, you know, for instance, uh, Dr. Kenny Brown, which I think, you know, Cliff, he had 
spoke one year at Ohio, but Kenny's a family doctor and, you know, kind of a young up and comer, Bigfoot guy. He's bright. He's in the woods all the time. It's really big deal for him. And he's doing, he's really interested in the LDRs along duration recorders. So he is doing it in several of the areas that I'm in and he'll call me and say, Hey, I've got a whoop on this date and this location or whatever. And so I just keep adding it to that location. So I'm hoping that, you know, I'll get to a point where like right now, maybe only four or five times a year, I have a good idea of where something may be at a certain place. Of course, that's no guarantee that you're going to even see anything or hear anything, but I just have a rough idea that they're in a general area then. And so I try to concentrate my hikes there. And, you know, it was interesting. I did this one report. It was this um, guy that was a timber guy and he was way out in some mountain in West Virginia and the, the, the uh, bulldozer broke down his guys and went to get some parts and he was working on this dozer and it was in the middle of the woods and his guys came back and when they came over the hill, you know, they're just driving on land or essentially fields to get back there. And they stopped because they thought that they saw a bear up against this tree. Well, as they're watching it, it became apparent to them that it wasn't a bear, that it was a Bigfoot and it turned and looked at him and it took off running and when it got to like their drag road, you know, which is just where the dozer's going over dragging logs out, it jumped the road rather than leaving a track. And of course, you know, mountain lions, chimps are cognizant of leaving their footprints. And I think that many times these animals are too. And another thing I found interesting was that the Bigfoot was peeking around a tree. And although it was several hundred yards from this guy working on a dozer, and rather just standing there and looking, you know, it was still behind a tree, still peeking, you know, it was so punchy, you know, about not being seen. Yeah, I know. I talked to a logging truck driver one time that saw one walk up to a muddy road. It was actually the road I had my sighting on, and it's a logging road, but it's a wide one. You could put three trucks side by side on it in certain parts. For sure, like, you don't, you don't have to pull over anywhere to pass on most of this road. It's so, it's pretty wide, and he said it. It came out, it dropped down, and put its arms over its head, and then barrel rolled across the mud, just left a smear mark with no footprints, and it got over to a stump or tree on the other side and put its feet on the front of the tree and then wrapped its hands around the back and just pulled itself up and then stepped off over the brush. So, like, there was no sign of any footprint anywhere. But, you know, you wouldn't, it was just a smear across the road, but you wouldn't even, you, it wouldn't jump out. It'd be like, that's weird, but you just think it's some logging thing or, you know, something like that. Yeah. So, you know, why is it then that sometimes there'll be a trackway, but, you know, the great almost majority of the time, you know, you just may see a scuff or you just may see a little bit of something. You know, I, I think it's odd that uh, it's odd to hear of a trackway, you know, and you wonder what the circumstances were that made one so unpun- so uh, ambivalent, you know, about just walking through something where, you know, that that's not been the case that I find at all. You know, I find like you're saying Bobo that it's, uh, you know, think of the skookum cast the same way, you know, there was all those apples out there and, you know, it just didn't walk out there and get the fruit or whatever. It just kind of lounged out there, laid out there to get them. Yeah. yeah they're highly, highly cognizant of not leaving tracks. I kind of wonder, I mean, this, this is just a speculative sort of uh, question on my part. Um, I know that when I uh, am hanging out with my dog, she hates to get her feet wet, you know, and I know Sasquatches are walking through the woods and it's pretty damp and wet all the time. But I often wonder, it's like, do they just not like the feel of it? 
Um, like, or they, maybe they, uh, they certainly know that they leave behind their own tracks and they, and as Dr. Krantz hypothesized, they might even recognize other individuals by their footprints. It wouldn't take any more brain capacity than the, the recognizing other individual wolf by its smell for other wolves. Right. So, um, if they can recognize other individuals and certainly, yeah, yeah, they wouldn't want to tell like clue off where they've been, or maybe sometimes they do want to tell the other Sasquatches where they've been and they would leave an obvious footprint. Um, it's interesting. There's so much to learn and speculate about these things. Uh, but I, every once in a while, I kind of wonder, it's like, well, man, maybe they just don't like mud. I know that my dog won't walk in it if, unless, you know, unless she has to. She's always trying to walk. She's kind of a press, though, to be fair. Like, my dog's gone too soft. Maybe they're like uh, other debris. You know, like my lab is, I can't get him to go in my pool, but every mud hole that I come to, he walks through. Really? Really? Yeah, who knows? I don't know. I think it's interesting. And certainly Dr. Krantz, again, speculated on his book. And I'll say it again, as I say almost every episode, every episode here, if you have not read Krantz's book, by God, go get that book and read it. Um, it's pretty great, especially for early 90s, you know. Anyway, um, he says that uh, um, it's, it's skeptics point and say, well, clearly these are fake prints because they're found in an obvious place. But if a Sasquatch was communicating to other Sasquatches through their footprints, um, and they can recognize other individuals of their family or group or troop or whatever you want to call it. That seems like a really good way to do it. Leaving footprints around, um, where the other members of your group of your gang can, can see it. Um, I, I think that's a very, very interesting possibility, but that also, if that is true, if that is true, that brings up another whole thing. Can they track their prey? I think that would be very interesting because certainly dogs and, you know, canines in general, wolves, they, they would track their prey by scent. And if it doesn't take any more brain capacity to do it by sight, well, then why not? Wouldn't that be interesting? Because certainly humans tracking ability came from somewhere primordial. You don't think they, you think it's a debatable they track other animals? I think it's a question. And I don't think anybody has a solid answer. Oh, uh, they've been seen totally walking right in the track line of like an elk or a deer and like following like uh, i think that, i don't think there's a question that they track animals i think it's a very interesting possibility i mean there's some stories where certain particular deer you know have their tongue hanging out similar to like when they're being chased like a dog you know where apparently something has been on his track and people saw the bigfoot come along after that but i mean i guess i always perceive them as being more of an ambush you know type um, I guess predator would be the right word or whatever that they're laying in wait. There's, you know, they know where the animals go and there's a spring or whatever. You know, one time I was in the woods and a lot of times in Appalachia minerals are found in the rocks. And of course the deer will go in like the rock overhangs or like the little shallow caves and you'll see all kinds of deer tracks and there's only one way in and one way out. And I thought many times, gosh, it'd be so easy for something just to wait for those deer to come here. And then, you know, get one when it comes out, but you know, maybe it's, um, because they're opportunistic, they're doing it all. You know, they're eating roadkill, they're eating trash, they're eating out of dumpsters, they're, uh, following deer, they're, they're ambushing deer. You know, there's, you know, if they pick a snake up in the book, um, I had a really interesting report that was out of, uh, Tennessee and this lady, like to get her exercise by walking and, you know, they're developing a lot of Tennessee quickly. And so some of the areas that are, you know, pretty remote are getting developed and it was surrounded on three sides by parks and she would walk about six or eight miles down these, you know, park roads that are kind of gravel. 
And she said that uh, she had came along and she'd seen, it was like a sunny area. And she's like, you know, it'd been winter and it was cool. And so it was so nice. That sun was just coming through. And she said, you know, the, it was about 60 or 70 yards in front of her, the little field or rough area, maybe kind of where when they were working on the road, they turned the equipment around or something, something like that, you know, not something somebody would farm. And she said that um, she just saw something. And then all at once she saw a Bigfoot jump out, jump down. And when it stood back up, she said, I don't know what kind of snake it was, but it was holding a really long snake. And she said, then it jumped right back into the woods. And so, you know, there's a lot of food and things out there like that, that we just don't think about, uh, you know, necessarily as being something that we want to eat. But I thought that was interesting, you know, that, um, you know, that she'd had that type of experience. Russ, have you, come, have you run across reports of them eating insects? No, I mean, it seems reasonable to me that they would, you know, I talked to some people in particular, like Dr. Brown that I talked about earlier, you know, he, his family is very familiar with um, you know, funguses and different mushrooms and things like that. And, you know, they had told me that December was the hardest month to be able to not find things like that to eat in the woods that largely every other month there was plenty available, you know, and I've came upon logs where it looked like something had been digging, you know, you know, of course bears will do that, but, you know, it's just like certain behaviors you expect out of a bear. And sometimes when you come upon something, the way something dug or the way something, where it was at just makes you think that it might've been something else. So, you know, I'm sure that they probably are after, you know, I think that they're an omnivore. I think that they're opportunistic. I think that they're eating almost anything that they can. My belief had been over the years that I had found that when berries were on, which was kind of, you know, when the weather was getting warmer in the early part of summer, that I was finding more stuff on the North facing hillside and so I was looking for berries that were on a right away that a four wheeler couldn't get to that was on a north facing hillside. And so then when I would get there, I would go walking back and forth. And a couple of different times I'd found what I believed were beds. And one time it had a stack of walnuts that were like kind of piled up in like a stack. And then of course, then I had to look around and look to see if I could find a walnut tree. There wasn't any that I had located, you know, of course it's a mountainside. So there could have been easily one that I overlooked, but I mean, I don't know what nature would go and find walnuts and then, you know, pile them up. I mean, squirrels would take them and bury them or whatever it happens to be. But, you know, this was obviously, you know, something else. Could you describe the beds, the bedding area, like like what kind of location, like the terrain it was in and what it was just constructed of? So when the weather is warm, my experience has been that they don't have bedding materials. Like commonly you'll hear about the Pacific Northwest I don't know if that was, you know, a different type of weather or, you know, that was a different function of those or whatever it happens to be. I can just say that the ones that I have seen when the weather's been warmer is that they were on the ground and they were large donut shaped, but larger than what you would expect to see with a bear bed or anything like that. Um, when you see them sometimes, and I've only found them a few times, I found it to be shocking at how large they are. But once again, I have found that in like in Appalachia where we have hills or mountains, they generally weren't in the main hollow. And I'm not saying they don't go in main hollows or they're not there at night or whatever it happens to be, but I'm just saying in terms of where they spend their time, I find it to be a side hollow with a North facing hillside. And there's usually like some water in it, you know, maybe water that would, you know, if it, in the summer it may have like a little couple puddles that something could drink out of. 
but that's just where I have had luck. You know, it's probably maybe 10 minute walk for me to get to where the berries would be. So for them, just a couple minutes, maybe, but not four wheeler paths, but that's just been my experience on, you know, what I look for when it's about the berry time and I'll go on Google earth and I'll look at those right aways and different areas and maybe large parklands or whatever it happens to be. And then I'll just mark them on my Onyx app. And when I go to those areas, I'll hike into those particular areas and just start at the bottom of the hillside and just work my way back and forth to the top. And 99.9% of the time, it's just a nice day in the woods. Have you gone back and found uh, that the same nest was still discernible, like maybe a year or two, three later? No, Um, I've been back almost every, you know, like I said, I've only found a couple, three or four. And every time that I went back, they have not been active the following year. So I I would assume, I speculate that they're in that same general area, but probably just using a different place. Now, so the nest, but the nest was still findable. You could still identify the nest, right? Yeah, there was one nest I found in the winter. And the nest I found in the winter had leaves in it for the bedding material. And it was, uh, I have a picture of it in a book. It's, you know, it's up this remote hollow. You drive in the most remote section of Ohio, you get out on a gravel park road and then you would walk a mile up a hollow and then there's no trails or paths. And then you turn up another hollow and there's some rock cliffs and it was at the base of the rock cliffs, kind of like a little overhang, so to speak. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what would be, that was in Ohio. So there's nothing in Ohio that's building a bed or a nest like that. I mean, you know, the bears, um, there's very few of them around. I mean, Ohio has a less hundred less, um, a hundred resident bears for the population. I mean, Ohio might be the one state that has more Bigfoots than bears, um, the, you know, that has both. So it's kind of an unusual state that way. But, you know, I've gone back there. I keep it in mind because I always think about, you know, maybe eDNA or something like that, that at some point there'll be a technology where I can go and sift through that particular area and come up with something. Yeah, I've, I've never heard of, of, a, of a nest site being discovered that they've ever utilized them ever again. Like once a person found it, they never, ever came back from any, anyone I've, I've talked to. Wow, I never heard that. I didn't know. Well, certainly, uh, I know the Olympic Project nests. I mean, that's the one I've, I'm, that's the situation I'm most familiar with. And I've been to the both sites, the new and old nests, et cetera. Um, and it seems that they, they don't come back to the exact same nest. But the first nest site where there's like, what, 20 of them along a mile stretch of ridge, certainly they're using the area. And since those nests have been discovered, not only have another nest site been discovered in the same general area last February, I think it was, um, so a year ago from now, um, maybe it was two years ago now. Again, my sense of time is elastic. But um, they're certainly in the area. There have been sightings in the area. There have been footprint finds in the same area. Um, there have been um, foraging sites. I mean, I found a footprint five feet away I, I from the exact uh, same bed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But they're still in the same general area, which is encouraging yeah. because they, they chose that area for a reason and it doesn't seem like they're abandoning it. Have they said whether, have the guys noticed that uh, Shane and Todd and Derek and those guys, whether or not it's always on a, you know, a east facing hillside or a north facing hillside or a, you know, a particular area of the. They seem to be fingers uh, going into a, uh, a river valley. So let, let me think for a minute with where this thing's situated. They're all south to some degree. Uh, they are actually, all of the nests are kind of on these fingers that point out from the main, main ridge. The ridges run north and south, and the fingers point out to the west. So they're kind of towards the end of those fingers that are pointing out to the west. I just keep hoping that, you know, all of us that are out there are 
finding our own things and, uh, you know, hopefully everybody's sharing it. And, you know, I'm hoping by telling, you know, somebody may say, well, I know exactly a place like that. When I talk about, you know, not the main hollow North facing slope, you know, the, you know, they'll go out and look and maybe they'll find something who knows, maybe they'll find a dead one and I'll be the one that, uh, solves the whole mystery or whatever it happens to be. But, you know, I think that we all need to share, um, you know, so that, you know, there's a chance that maybe we can come up with a better data set or more data. And then, you know, maybe when Derek and those guys say, well, you know, listen, if you go to this particular subtype of terrain and it looks like this and there's, you know, there's always huckleberries or whatever it happens to be, um, you know, then maybe we can reproduce it in different areas. One of the things we're doing here at the NABC is we're utilizing the data that Paul Freeman, Wes Summerlin, and all those guys uh, compiled onto their map, the Paul Freeman map. And we're uh, looking at, at that because there's a number of betting sites on the map. And um, through the data that I've collected through the year for, by either knowing people involved or Dr. Meldrum and his files or whatever, there's actually a fair number of photographs of these nests as well. Um, and so we're trying to piece together where certain nests were found um, date, based on dates on the photographs and dates on the map, et cetera. And, uh, and they seem, based on the map, I know, I know a map is a 30,000-foot view and whatnot. We have to actually go to the sites to figure it out. But based on the map, they seem to be positioned very similarly, um, kind of towards the end of these little fingers that are going out over river valleys. Um, so we're trying to try to piece some things together for internal use at the, at the museum here for our own field work. Uh, but I, I cannot agree with you more. We need more data, whether it's positive data or negative data, trying to piece the puzzle together, because that's the only way that this that we're going to push the ball down the field at all. I think we, we could continue going out haphazardly and just get lucky. But if we had some data to back it up and say, well, I predict here and then we went there and actually had success like the Freeman footage. Paul predicted where they would be based on sighting reports from previous years, started going up there every single morning. And within a few weeks, he got the footage. That's one, one of the only data sets. That, PG films kind of like that, too. Um, but it wasn't so specific. And the PG film was gotten because Roger and Bob went up there for two weeks after the Blue Creek Mountain tracks in, um, in August, a few months before. But uh, the Paul Freeman footage. You know, that, that, that's a really good example of using data to get something positive. And if we can start doing that as a community, we finally start getting somewhere, I believe. Well, Russ, thank you so much for joining us again. I, I, I'm afraid I have to cut um, our, our talk short today. I've got another appointment I have to go do. Um, so I need to get going. But thank you so much for coming back on for your second dip in the Bigfoot and Beyond pool. Really, really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you as the season starts rolling. I can get back east and hopefully see one of these gigs back there. Yeah, thanks, Russ. Can't wait to see you again because, you know, I love my West Virginia. So I'll hopefully get back there and do some squatching with you. Yeah, I, I still got to order your book, Russ. Where can I get it? So if you go on, uh, you can go on Amazon and find both the books on there. Or you can go on thebigfootdoc.com, my new website I just got up and running. It'll have links on there. I'd love it if people would send me some reports, add to my data collection so we can, you know, try to move the ball forward. Okay. And you know, um, and whatever it's worth, we have autographed copies at the North American Bigfoot Center. If you want to come in and purchase one here, you can do that as well. Thanks guys. I appreciate it. All right, Cliff. Well, that's another great one. Always good to catch up with the doctor. Absolutely. Okay, folks. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Uh, if you like what you heard, share, like, hit all those buttons that spread the word and like Dr. Jones, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. 
If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 